Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Hi there, my name is Dr. Camilla Sasson. I'm an emergency medicine physician and also serve as the Vice President for Science and Innovation for Healthcare Business Solutions for the American Heart Association. I am so excited to be able to be joined today by Dr. Cheryl Chow, who is our chair of the new presidential advisory that has just come out from the American Heart Association, as well as Dr. Wilson Compton, as well, who is one of our co-authors. So just wanna say thank you to both of you for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Chow, do you wanna introduce yourself? Sure, and, and thank you, Camilla. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, California, and it's an absolute thrill to be here joining you and invited for this podcast. I'm very excited. We have a lot to discuss. Thank you, Cheryl. Dr. Compton? Well, thank you, Camilla and Cheryl. It's my pleasure to join you today to talk about our recent publication coming out of the American Heart Association. By background, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and I'm currently the deputy director at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is part of the National Institutes of Health that supports health research all across our country. Well, thank you both. You have so many great perspectives, and it's been so much fun, really, to be able to work with you and and both on this new presidential advisory. So why don't we launch right into kind of getting into what the advisory is discussing. So Cheryl, can you tell us a little bit about why it's so important right now to address the opioid crisis? Yeah, thank you, Camilla, for that question. And, you know, as we know, opioid overdose is one of the major causes of injury-related death for adults within the ages of 25 to 54 years old in the United States. And, you know, the death rates continue to rise. Looking at, of course, all the drug-related deaths the majority are due to opioid overdose. So two out of three are in fact opioid overdose. So just to provide some perspective, you know, the odds of someone dying from an accidental opioid overdose are higher than that of dying in a car accident. And this really illustrates the fact that opioid deaths are very common. And the timing of this paper is very important. It's critical given that the crisis is, you know, exists today and it's rising and it's becoming more and more urgent. So our advisory paper seeks to improve education and training for the public and also healthcare professionals. And it focuses on two main issues, how to manage pain and opioid overdose in cardiovascular disease and stroke, and also to raise more awareness about opioid use disorder. And I think it's so interesting, Cheryl, when you when you put it into the perspective of more common than you know dying from a car wreck, it just tells you just how much of a critical situation this is right now in the U.S. You know, Wilson, I know we've talked about this before. It looked like we were actually doing better in terms of our opioid deaths and that they were decreasing. What's happened recently that has kind of changed things? Well, it's really been unfortunate, but what we've seen is that the marketplace for opioids has changed. Now, what do we mean by the marketplace? That means there are drug dealers and drug sellers that have shifted the kinds of opioids that are available out there in the community. So while we still see a very large number of deaths from the prescription painkillers like oxycodone, hydrocodone, uh, and similar opioids that you might get in pill form, we've seen a very large increase in deaths from 
fentanyl-related compounds. And these aren't the prescription fentanyls that may be used for end-of-life care or in hospitals, but these are agents that are sold on the street that may be manufactured primarily in China and then shipped to the US. And they're so dangerous because they are so terribly potent. They are some 50 times more potent than heroin or 100 times more potent than morphine. So that means that very small quantities can poison someone and cause them to stop breathing. It also means that very small quantities smuggled into the US can be sold on the street. So the potency both enhances its ability to be marketed and sold and helps explain why it's so deadly. I know as an ER doc, I've seen the effects of this. I, I know just even personally working one night in the emergency department, we had 20 some people who came in from what we would call a tainted batch of, of, of drugs that they had gotten on the streets. And so it just tells you just how potent these, these drugs really can be and why it's such an important thing for us to be talking about. Now, Cheryl, opioids are not new. They've been around since the 1700s. How did this become such a crisis situation? Yeah, and as you mentioned, it has been around since the 1700s, and it's, it's been used to treat pain for a while. But it really wasn't until recently in 1980 that there was a publication, and in fact, it was just a letter, which included just some observations of patients who were um, receiving opioids and they were in the hospital setting. And in this letter, the author had concluded that addiction was rare in patients who didn't have a history of addiction. So this letter became rapidly cited as evidence and that addiction was an exaggerated fear. And so this misrepresentation in combination with very aggressive pharmaceutical marketing and also the development of a normalization of of pain management in the hospitalized patient really led to the current opioid epidemic that we have today. We go back to the idea that ultimately opioids are used to address pain. You know, there's a lot of our, our folks that are listening who have had pain, who either have, have got acute pain or have had chronic pain issues for a long time. How do opioids work to help with pain and, and why are they so addictive, Wilson? Well, it's a really important question. And while we can both, I can explain a little bit about how opioids work. But I'd also put in a plug for some of the research that the National Institutes of Health is undertaking to come up with new treatments for pain, to understand pain better, and come up with new treatments that won't rely on addictive substances like the opioids. Opioids act in our central, both peripherally, but particularly in our central nervous system. That means in our brain, parents are lessen the impact of pain. They don't actually make the pain go away but they make us less sensitive to it and just not care about it as much. So you still may be able to describe the pain, but it doesn't have anywhere near the same impact. And it does that because opioids interact with specific receptors in our brain that are there to respond to internal chemicals that our brain releases. We've often heard of the runner's high or endorphins. Well, those are internal morphine-like substances that interact with those same receptors in our central nervous system or brain, and opioids interact with those receptors. Unfortunately, those same receptors are part of what control our breathing. And so that explains why opioids, when taken in high dosages, can suppress breathing and cause somebody to have an overdose when they die of not breathing properly. 
Well, I know the American Heart Association has put together some training programs specifically for the general public on the use of naloxone as a way in which to help reverse that uh, suppression of breathing or, or when people start stop breathing from taking too much opioids as well. Can you talk a little bit about how naloxone works as well and why it's so important for people to understand how to use it and when to use it? Naloxone is a specific opioid blocking agent. So what do we mean by that? Well, it means that it, it interacts with the receptors in our brain and, and prevents the opioids themselves from causing the suppression of respiration or the other effects of opioids. So it means that when somebody has overdosed and they may be blue and not breathing at all or not breathing very heavily, in that situation, if naloxone is administered, they will wake up because it blocks the effects of the opioids and they, they will recover from that acute overdose situation. Now, there are a couple of concerns about that. If somebody has been taking opioids regularly and you suddenly block the effects of opioids, they may feel an extreme sense of opioid withdrawal. So they may be sick to their stomach, they may become extremely anxious, they may get goosebumps and other symptoms of opioid withdrawal. The good news is that naloxone doesn't last very long. So those withdrawal symptoms will dissipate over a few minutes or a few hours at the longest. And it's during that time that it's important to implement longer term solutions to their problems. And I just want to remind folks that there's free training available specifically for people who are interested in learning about naloxone and how to administer that. So I would recommend um, that you go to the American Heart Association site to look for that free training. And I know the NIH has some excellent resources as well for that too. Now, Cheryl, I know that you know opioid addiction has really changed in the US a lot over the last few years. And we've also been living through the COVID-19 pandemic as well. How has COVID impacted opioid addiction in the U.S.? And that's a great question because we've all been living through the lockdown or partial lockdowns, and it's had a dramatic impact. Um, first, the most recent report showed that there was a rise, in fact, in opioid-related deaths during the whole COVID-19 lockdown. And this is not surprising, you know, when we consider the lockdown, disruption of medications even, and social isolation and depression. So I think this is still extremely concerning because it seems like COVID is here to stay. And we have the Delta variant and the Lambda variants and all the different variants evolving over time. And so I think it's here to stay. And it's something that really needs to be addressed, this opioid epidemic. It needs to be addressed head on. For those people that have addiction um, or maybe are, you know, have been using opioids for a very long time, there are ways in which to safely be able to either come off of opioids or to even be tapered down from opioids as well. I know that we've been starting to do more in the emergency department in terms of treating patients who have opioid use disorder, who come in and say, look, you know what, I want to get off of opioids. I want to be able to you know, start something else or be able to kind of get back to my life again. And so we've been able to provide some addiction treatment in the emergency department. So we know that there are patients who have pain and we know that opioids may or may not be the best option for them. What are some of the different ways in which pain can be treated that maybe doesn't include opioids? Wilson, can you tell us a little bit more about what those options may be? 
Well, certainly we need better options for treating pain that don't include the addictive substances like the opioids. And that's a major area of research at the National Institutes of Health, where we've invested heavily in developing new treatments that don't involve opioids. But even at the current time, there's been recent research that reminds us that not every acute pain syndrome, whether that's an injury that brings you to the emergency room or a surgical procedure, requires opioids that we've seen in careful studies that patients can do extremely well, just as well in terms of pain control with other products, whether that's acetaminophen or NSAIDs or other approaches to addressing their painful conditions. I don't wanna say that's an answer for everybody. And there are many times when opioids are still absolutely required and would be the appropriate treatment for a serious painful condition. But we are working on alternatives and some of them exist currently. I know we've been referring much more to uh, for our patients to get acupressure, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, even getting blocks done, you know, by other healthcare professionals as well as is an alternative option for pain management as well. Now, you know, you had mentioned Wilson NSAIDs, um, so that could be something like ibuprofen or naproxen. There are some caveats to that as well. I know, especially from a cardiovascular perspective. Cheryl, can you tell us a little bit about why people have to be on the lookout or be on, on alert if they're going to be prescribed NSAIDs as well? Sure. Yeah. Um, usually patients with cardiovascular disease should most likely not be receiving any kind of ibuprofen, for example, as an example of NSAIDs. And that is because like whether you've had a heart attack, outcomes are worse. If you have heart failure, it can actually worsen the congestion with heart failure. And it actually interacts with or works in a deleterious way with commonly used cardiovascular medications like ACEs and ARBs or ARNIs. And so we need to use NSAIDs judiciously, but try to avoid altogether. Uh, something that I, I want to stress is, you know, ibuprofen and other NSAIDs are over the counter. And just make sure that you ask your pharmacist before starting any kind of pain treatment. If you want to reach for the ibuprofen, just stop by your pharmacy and talk to the pharmacist and ask whether it's appropriate, especially if you have a cardiovascular condition. So, you know, the expertise is right there. I think sometimes people are quick to treat themselves and uh, they don't know that these medications can actually have um, very adverse effects. I think it's also really important too for folks to understand over-the-counter doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to tell your healthcare professional. <laughs> and so really, really important to not only ask the pharmacist when you do think about you know buying that off the shelf, but also make sure you let your healthcare professional know if you are taking any over-the-counter supplements as well too. Wilson, what are some of the things that people should be asking their doctors or their nurse practitioners or their healthcare professionals about if they're interested in either tapering down from their opioids or even just coming off of them completely? I think you're bringing up a couple of related situations. One may be somebody who has an, a full-blown opioid use disorder, so maybe addicted to opioids. That's a person who continues to use opioids despite them causing problems for them, that has tried to reduce or control their use, but is unable to, that has 
organized their life around the opioids themselves. Those are the hallmark features of an opioid use disorder. In that situation, we would certainly recommend not just tapering the opioids, but transitioning probably to an opioid replacement medication like buprenorphine or methadone. And indeed, as you just mentioned, Camilla, starting that on the spot in an emergency room is some of the latest techniques that have been recommended. And so figuring out how not only do we get somebody started on these life-saving medications, but how do we make sure that they have access to them long-term so that they can really be a part of turning their lives around. Addiction is a condition that affects not just a short-term aspect of our lives, but a major long-term uh, set of problems addressing every aspect, whether that's social, medical, psychiatric, and those take time to turn around. I know the presidential advisory really, I think, speaks to the importance that all healthcare professionals should know how to treat someone who has opioid use disorder, but also have the ability to destigmatize getting care, because I think that's such an important part of making people feel comfortable asking for help. I know that that's something that oftentimes we see in the emergency department where people will come in and say, gosh, you know, I've, I didn't realize I needed help until maybe I had an overdose or maybe I had a friend that overdosed, or I realized that this was really starting to rule my life in, in ways I didn't even realize until my family and friends told me. So I think, you know, again, that's where hopefully in this presidential advisory, we can kind of reinforce how important it is for every healthcare professional out there to really understand how important the opioid crisis is and how it's impacting all of our patients. So I know we're running out of time and I know hopefully people can go to the presidential advisory to read some more. Um, any final thoughts, Cheryl and Wilson, about what you want to make sure that people know about both the opioid crisis, but also what they can do to help as well? Based upon the discussion today, I think, you know, the public has learned how important it is to learn more about opioid use disorder and, and how to manage an overdose, because it's always better to be prepared. And as you mentioned earlier, the AHA has guidelines for lay responders specifically as well, which instructs them how to respond to a possible overdose. So if anyone, for example, friends or family knows or suspects opioid use disorder, they should go and get a naloxone kit in advance. And it's easy. In fact, in most states, anyone can purchase a naloxone kit at the pharmacy without a prescription. So to all the listeners out there, becoming more educated and being prepared can actually save the life of someone you know. I certainly would agree with that advice, that just like we have defibrillators all around the country to save people that may have had a myocardial infarction or heart attack, making sure that we have the antidote the, to an opioid overdose readily available can save lives. You only have about four minutes when somebody stops breathing, during which time you can administer the antidote and save somebody's life. So time really is of the essence. And that's where the public and families can play such a crucial role. I just want to end by saying that addiction as the underlying condition, while it has acute effects that need to be treated like an, in an overdose, these also have long-term treatments that are available and that recovery is quite possible. And that's a message of hope that I think it's important for everyone to hear. Thank you both. And I think ending on that note is really important. I think a lot of us have seen some really amazing stories of people who've been able to turn their lives around and really have been able to, to move forward from you know, their addictions as well too. So thank you both for your amazing work on the presidential advisory and for joining us today. Thank you again and uh, have a great day. 
Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest.